podcast. My name is Aramidas. And I'm Daniel Grasso. And today I would like to preface this episode by saying we've already tried this once. <laughs> so originally we recorded this episode um, to give a broad overview of existentialism and how it relates to Dostoevsky. And it didn't seem to pan out too well because I really got bogged down in the minutia of details and trying to relate um, versions of existentialism in our current modern conceptions of the term back to Dostoevsky, and it didn't seem to line up very well, and Daniel was accusing me of all sorts of inaccuracies. Yeah, what's what's important to know is that Aaron was wrong, (laughs) and he made a horrible mistake, and in his contrition, we decided to re-record the episode, so. We just wanted to be accurate. and so it, I think I think it's uh, important that I start off with two prefaces, you know, as we go into this episode. So one being that existentialism is a very broad term and it really doesn't come into existence on its own until really the mid 20th century. And we have taken authors like Dostoevsky and stated that they have a connection to existentialism or even exhibit existentialist thought, but it would be inappropriate to call them existentialists in their own right because they never use the term. They're not really ascribed to that kind of philosophical thought necessarily in any sort of like academic sense. And I think that can even be extended out even further with Dostoevsky. And we need to remember that Dostoevsky is really a novelist first and not really a philosopher. Um, even though he does present philosophies to the reader, uh, especially in the form of their characters as they explore different psychological attributes and ways of living, he doesn't really present any sort of concentric academic philosophical stances that we would normally be dealing with, you know, in a on this podcast, for example, in, in comparison to like somebody like Plato, really. We have to remember that it's 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 very like it's this is a very like tangential connection that we're drawing here as to try to kind of tease out exactly what's going on in the notes from underground and trying to understand what kind of existentialism is being presented and if it it can be really called existentialism in the way that we understand it today. And so we're going to try to give a more accurate view of that um, as opposed to trying to draw this like broad picture of existentialism as a whole thought. We're just going to go into what is Dostoevsky about and his connection to the field. And most especially, um, preface to the preface, um, existentialism, it has many different versions of it, I guess. Like it just changes so dramatically between thinkers and has some underlying thoughts that connect them, but it, it really changes between, you know, there's a huge jump between somebody like Martin Heidegger and, and John Paul Sartre. So they're just, existentialists, yes, but they're two completely different thinkers. And so with Dostoevsky specifically, we're dealing with Christian existentialism, which is a very certain brand of existentialism. And so therefore, we have to assume the existence of God in all of these arguments. Um, I'm not going to get into his arguments for God's existence. They're out there, they exist, and maybe we can get into that a little bit, but it would be it would bog down the episode too much in order for us to cover God's existence um, as a subject in this. And so we're just going to assume his existence, a Christian God's existence in order to kind of make the arguments that Dostoevsky is making. So that way we can set the stage for his, for his philosophy. And so with that, we'll kind of get into it with a more clinical treatment of Dostoevsky's philosophy. I know that was a lot. No, (laughs) it's, it's important that we do more preface because last time we got a little, we got a little tangled up. Um, 
And it's in it's important. It's it's strange because existentialism, the major thinkers of existentialism, only really Sartre accepted the title. And I guess when you accept the title, you kind of get to you know retroactively decide what happens um, and what's important. So. Uh, it's important to say, you know, historically there are these differences and most of these people we call existentials rejected the title within their own lifetime. Um, so so we do want to, you know, keep it more narrow. But um, to completely contradict that, um, I want to start by giving a very, very broad strokes existentialist um, a bullet point list, essentially, and how they connect and these ideas and these themes that you'll see through not just, you know, religious or secular existentialism, but through through the all of uh, existentialist thought. Um, and like Aaron said, Dostoevsky may or may not be an existentialist. Um, Walter Kaufman, one of the first people to translate a lot of this and, you know, put it together as an editor you know, he doesn't, he describes Dostoevsky not as an existentialist, but he uses um, the first part of Notes from Underground as the opening salvo to his anthology on existentialism, um, because he saw within this character uh, existential tendencies that will relate to Kierkegaard and we'll talk about more. Um, but to, just to go very broad, um, and it's like, okay, if you hear someone talking about existentialism, what are they really talking about? Um, if it's so broad, um, I'm going to start with the idea of the individual that in existentialism, the importance and the weight of it comes down to the individual person and that person's uniqueness and their personhood. And this is very important because these individuals have choice and freedom. So existentialists believe in the freedom to act, the freedom to choose, they don't believe in this predest anything predestination, materialistic, at least, you know, um, not to any extreme. Um, and so as an individual person who has freedom, that requires you to act with responsibility, to take responsibility of your choice and of your free will. And when you take responsibility, you end up struggling. You end up in the state of what may be called anguish. That you are that you realize that you are a person who lives in the world and has the ability to do what they want, to act the way they want, um, and they have the responsibility to do that. And that it may be easier to ignore this, to ignore the fact that you are free in this world to do what you want, but it's according to existentialism, it is wrong and inauthentic and essentially less human to not struggle, to not accept responsibility for your freedom. So this idea of accepting responsibility and struggling to continually being responsible for yourself um, is the idea of authenticity. So if you're a person who's taking responsibility for their freedom, struggling to do that, then you are living an authentic existential life, right? And so that's like the little, the little bullet point in this idea that authenticity kind of loops back to the individual that when we are struggling and taking responsibilities for ourselves authentically is the same as saying that we're acting as ourselves. So you kind of have this virtuous circle where once you realize your individuality and your personhood through in your freedom, through responsibility, we struggle to become ourselves and to remain ourselves and to remain free. 
So all these actions and these terms really kind of add up and they continually go in the circle that says, okay, I am me. I'm going to take responsibility for that. The opposite of that, of living inauthentically, we'll hear a lot about from Kierkegaard in a little bit. But like an example would be acting according to some tradition you don't really believe in, living according to some cultural norms that you haven't investigated, that you don't really think about, you just kind of do it. Or, you know, just being completely a slave to your lower level desires without really trying to take responsibility for yourself and for your own will. Um, And so that that little structure, I want you to just kind of keep in mind because that's existentialism in its broadest, broadest strokes. Um, Now, the reason that it gets super confusing is that there are existential thinkers who are religious and there are existential thinkers who are secular and, you know, some stuff in between. Um, but the biggest difference between the two, and we're going to talk about the religious existentialism today, the biggest difference is that this struggle for authenticity takes place, um, in a predetermined teleological direction. So you have a human nature and the ideal in a, in a Christian existentialism is God or Christ. And so you are struggling under the weight of your human nature to aim at this ideal for God and his commandments. Um, so there's an external objective standard. Now, obviously, if you considered, if you read someone like Nietzsche or Sartre, you may read that or you may hear that and say, well, that's not at all what they're about. And that's very true. So that's why I just kind of put them aside because we don't want to get in the weeds on these ideas of that, you know, that um, Dostoevsky wouldn't have really believed in anyway, because as Aaron said, first and foremost, he's a Russian Orthodox man. And it's probably more fair to say that he experiences his religion existentially instead of he's an existentialist who was religious. Um, So I think that's important. And with that in mind, I kind of want to toss it back to Aaron uh, and we'll go down some Kierkegaard um, pathways. Yeah. And I want to add just one more thing to that and to say that the immediate question that may come up from a listener would be, well, what's the difference between you know, a Christian existentialist who already has this idea of a teleology, right, of a human nature and an essence that needs to be pursued versus, you know, anything that we may see from a classical Greek philosopher such as Aristotle who would say that, you know, there is a a teleological endpoint to humanity, um, to the individual man that, that must be pursued and that being, you know, typically they would say virtue in the pursuit of eudaimonia. And I think it's important to note that, especially in terms of notes from underground, that existentialists are very phenomenological, which means that they're very focused on the experience of the individual. And so existentialism adds this other psychological element to it beyond the fact that there is a distinction, a philosophical distinction between existentialism and maybe the classical Greek philosophers, even though, once again, retrospectively, even there are some claims that Socrates is like part of (laughs) the existentialist camp. I know this gets really wild, but all I'm trying to say is, is that we have to remember that for the existentialist, it is more about the experience of the individual. What do you feel as an individual experiencing your own existence and the pursuit of an authentic existence for yourself? And it's like, like you're saying there, um, Walter Kaufman says, like, you know, in our last episode, we mentioned St. Augustine as one of the original existentialists, because his point is that religion has always been existentialist. It's always been about the individual and their experience, like you're saying, 
And, you know, so it is it is a little blurry, but we, we're trying to draw the lines where it's not it doesn't contain everything, but it, it also still is not so narrow. Right. Right. So why are we talking about Soren Kierkegaard? Right. So that name keeps coming up and I'm not going to give like a full biography of Kierkegaard here um, because eventually we will cover Kierkegaard probably when Daniel and I are like 65 <laughs> um, at this rate. <laughs> at this rate. Yeah. Um, yeah. But um um, we will cover him. And uh, so I don't want to necessarily like spoil too much. And I don't want to get into the weeds of him because he was a very prolific writer and has a huge influence. Um, he's also very strange. So I'm going to keep it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to keep it super broad because and what I wrote in my notes is that it's like it would be it's not necessarily beneficial <laughs> to give an overview of Kierkegaard's thoughts in order to understand the underground man. But it also wouldn't make sense to not talk about Kierkegaard in order to talk about the underground man. So we're like in a really right. weird spot here. <laughs> there is there is that quote from Kaufman I read last time where he's like, you know, it, it reads almost as if that the notes from underground, the underground man is like a parody of Kierkegaard, but Dostoevsky never would have read anything by him or knew he existed in his lifetime. So he says that Kierkegaard is like as 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 if he stepped out of Dostoevsky's pen. So it's like there is this really weird connection here. Yeah. And so uh, to get into it really quick. So a lot of this comes from um, two books specifically. One is called Either Or, and the other one is called Fear and Trembling. Um, I highly recommend that you read both of them. There's also Concluding Unscientific Postscript. Um, that's also another another huge novel of his, or not novel, I should say, just a, another work by him. Um, these are all super important. And one thing to also remember about Kierkegaard is that he always published under pseudonyms and he tried to fashion himself like a modern Socrates where he like he was constantly trying to tear down like your your automatic assumptions uh, or your biases about uh, on how you approach the world and saw the world. So it's kind of hard to tease out exactly what Kierkegaard himself may have thought at times because he never he never like tried to present his own works i mean he did sometimes but it, a lot of it was was trying to break apart you know your your personal bias much in a socratic way um so that way you could realize the insufficiency of your thought and then build you back anew so i'm going to try my best um so i'm going to talk about existential progression specifically um and so just hold on to what daniel was talking about about individual choice authenticity and freedom and anguish those are super important because as the individual moves through Three stages of existential progression is what Kierkegaard would call it. And the first is the aesthetic, which is where most people will find themselves. So the aesthetic realm or the aesthetic stage is things like your sensual experience. Um, imagination is a huge part of that. Um, irony, skepticism, um, your uh, the fragmentation of the individual. These are all things of the aesthetic realm. So just your we can liken it to the everyday um, of the non-cognitive functions of man. Um, that's kind of where we all operate. And he would call people like aesthetic slaves, where you just take things for granted. You're only about um, what I wrote in my notes is fleeing boredom and trying to find something interesting. So if you're bored, you're just trying to be interested. You're just trying to uh, have something to relieve your, you know, whatever the tensions are. Uh, so and we can find tons of examples of exactly what the aesthetic realm would look like. But then so the aesthetic realm would be essentially trying to flee authenticity and 
return to some sort of distraction. Yeah, he's very clear. Is that, that a good way to think about yeah, it? Yeah, you're not like choosing, really. It's not like you are consciously, authentically choosing of yourself. It is more of like, I'm bored, I'm going to play some video games. You're just kind of going with the flow. Right. Like if you use his idea of crowd versus the individual, if the individual is the existentialist, then the aesthetic or the aesthetite would be someone who's like milling about in a crowd. Right. And that kind of idea. Right. Okay. But that also that also may end up leading into the ethical as well. But there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of like Hegelian influence uh, that's present, obviously, because there is a there is contra Hegelian. <laughs> yeah, it, there is like because there is a um, there is a synthesis that occurs. Um, so these are like contrasting ideas that then have a synthesis in higher stages. But I'm not again, I'm just trying to like be very, <laughs> very, very broad with this. Okay, I'll stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> um, Let's read your notes. But um uh essentially uh, what you what you see is is like you're saying you have um you're just going with the flow right i think that's a good way to put it, it but you know you you're imagining part of the, the aesthetic realm is imagination is that you're imagining uh just better circumstances better material circumstances for yourself um so the ethical however is what orders the aesthetic realm and the aesthetic, uh, the the ethical realm, sorry, is is kind of like your universal laws, your normative ethics, the correct action, good and evil, um, standards for behavior. Um, and so, some of that may be cognitive, and some of it may be non cognitive. So, as to say that um, you wake up in the morning and you hopefully brush your teeth, but you don't think about brushing your teeth in the morning. You're just like, I just do it because society tells me that it's right to brush my teeth. That's a non-cognitive function of the ethical. Whereas a cognitive function would be something like, um, I don't run this red light. And it's because of this universal ethic of like, the law says that it is illegal to run the red light. And you can get into, well, I fear punishment or whatever, but if there's no cop around, you still don't run the red light because you're like, well, that's the law. And so that's a cognitive. Got cameras now. Yeah. Well, they never work. But the cognitive <laughs> the cognitive function is is to say that I followed, I choose to follow this ethic uh, that's been laid down. Um, now we can take this a step further now because your actions or your purpose for Kierkegaard and can be understood as as only being meaningful or discernibly meaningful if it's grounded in a norm, in a universal norm. So I think the best example that I could come up with, at least in my notes, was that you find purpose in your career progression because of the greater material success that it brings. So meaning to say that if you can't, if you're taking an action, you can't really understand its meaning unless you like put it in a universal in a universal ethic. So with that example that I give about the career progression, the action is the career progression, right? You want to advance in your career. You want to have a higher position with higher pay, but you don't understand why that progression would be meaningful unless it had a sort of telos or an end result or a universal ethic. And so the ethic being you pursue material success, that it is good for you to progress because it it is a universal of you want to be materially successful. And so therefore you pursue career progression. So hold that in your mind. That's important because now we're going to move into the, the aesthetic and the ethical versus the religious. So the last stage is the religious for the individual. Um, so 
what I was saying about purpose only being able to just be discerned or meaningfulness being discerned by a universal, what happens in the case of the religious man who sees themselves as as obeying the dictates of a god, but it, that god is paradoxical. And therefore, the actions of this individual would not be governed by reason. It wouldn't be governed by a discernible universal, at least in a Kantian sense, right? Like we wouldn't be able to understand it because they have now transcended the normative ethics of our time. So the biggest example that that Kierkegaard uses is obviously in Fear of Trebling, where he says Abraham sacrificing Isaac, right? So if we remember that biblical story from Genesis, Abraham goes up to the mount because God tells him to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. Um, So we know that murder is wrong. (laughs) Abraham knows that murder is wrong. But Abraham also believes in in obedience to God. And yet God is telling him to obey his commands to do something that is against the universal ethic of not murdering. So therefore, Abraham is obeying a universal, which is God, who is sits above all ethics. However, to us, his actions are paradoxical and lack meaning and therefore are above reason, which is the realm of the ethical. Like he has now transcended that because what he is doing is unreasonable to us. It would be crazy. It's wrong to sacrifice your son. But I can't tell him whether or not he's truly listening to God. Like it could be the ravings of a madman who's lost his mind, or he could truly be listening to the dictates of God that are against what I believe is ethically right. Um, And so then you enter into a whole bunch of paradoxes, right? So, you know, the unforgivable being forgiven by God or the eternal God being made flesh in the person of Christ or uh, the temporal, uh, uh, you know, the eternal being made temporal or the king who becomes the man of sorrows, right? There's all these like Christian paradoxes that are presented as a result. Um, and so faith becomes the 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 absolute, I guess you could say, virtue uh, or quality that the individual needs in order to transcend from the uh, the ethical realm of of what we understand as ethics guided by reason into the realm of religion and become your true self. And so, why is that the case? And it's because you have. Yeah, to, what's up with that? <laughs> yeah, so like I, that's like okay, but why would I need faith to then transcend? And it's. It's because for Kierkegaard, he is saying that that because of God, there is this universal that exists beyond us. And so in order to fully actualize the self in terms of our creation as our individual self, we not we must then become reconciled to that universal, which is God. And so therefore, we must authentically make the choice to leap, to have faith, this leap of faith, in order to believe that God is real and that he loves us and and wants to forgive us of our sins and all of the other and all the other uh, tenets of Christianity. But all of that requires us to embrace a paradox, right? Because we ourselves are unforgivable, mired in sin for the Christian. But God is this being who, although completely holy and untouchable, still comes down and forgives us and wants to know and love us. That is a paradox. There's nothing in the realm of reason in the aesthetic that would cause us to believe that any of that is true. And so we must take a leap of faith in order to believe it. And once we do, we will then be made complete. We will become our true selves and move beyond it from this realm of reason into the realm of religion because religion is not dictated by reason. It is the embracing of a paradox of of making the impossible possible. 
because all things are possible through God. They may not be possible in this life. So like an example that Kierkegaard would use is like his engagement, right? Or even better in fear and trembling when he talks about the night of faith, he, who is like the ideal man to him, it's this idea of like, he uses the princess, right? So the, the night of faith would be somebody who, who loves this princess that he will never be with. He, he absolutely loves her and adores her and maintains that affection while acknowledging that he will never be with the princess while at the same time, believing that because all things are possible through God, that he will be with the princess at the same time. So he believes two things 100% and so therefore has faith. So he acknowledges the reality of a situation, lives in that anguish, but then God fulfills, I guess that religion gives peace to that anguish. So to relate it back as to why we need that religion, it's that anguish, that anxiety that you were talking about, Daniel, in that I feel like I feel unfulfilled in my current aesthetic, right? Temporal circumstances. And that the ethical can't fulfill this problem of evil of why I'm unsatisfied, right? Of all these issues. And then so the religion, this leap of faith allows me to find peace in the fact that God makes all things possible and will wash away all woes and make all things a new creation. Right. And it's the importance of that individual experience of it's the importance is in the leap. Right. Which is incredibly individual. Incredible. It's like that. That would be the uh, the authentic um, taking responsibility. This idea of you have to experience the leap for yourself. It's not like you can experience this for your friend and they're in the same boat as you. Exactly. Exactly. And so to accept the 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 aesthetic and the ethical stage would be like accepting mediocrity really to him. It would be pathetic because essentially you are relegating your responsibility to the other, which is what you were talking about earlier, is that you have decided not to take your own authentic individual choice for your own self. And you have decided to say, I'm just going to live in in the expectations that everybody else imposes upon me by society. So like, and he would even go so far to say that if everybody around you is Christian, then there's no, there's not, there's nothing that compels you to make yourself Christian. You're not authentically choosing God. The religion has been chosen for you and you're not having the experience of the eternal, which is so important to the existential is the experience. If I'm making sense, I know this is a lot, but yeah. No, that makes sense. Yeah. It's, it makes me wonder what he'd say to someone who's just like, no, I'm, I'm satisfied with uh, the aesthetic. Uh, it's fine with me. Like I'm not dissatisfied with this world. And I think that is one of the reasons why he spent so much of his time trying to make convince people and show them that they should be dissatisfied. Because it's it's once you reach that stage that you can then enter into this cycle of it's almost like it's almost like platonic, um, the idea of like the cave where it's like until you can convince someone you're not looking at shadows, like they'll never want to leave because you have they don't they don't know. And so, yeah, yeah, you got to shake people like it's like literally the wake up sheeple of <laughs> it's um it's and in Kierkegaard would go so far as to to even talk about higher forms of consciousness he would say that you know as you enter into the realm of faith it's a higher order of consciousness that you experience that other people just don't have and so i'm just going to read ramble off some notes here um faith becomes a subjective or rather a very individualized passionate experience where one willingly embraces paradox and transcends the aesthetic and the ethical to be filled by the eternal beyond reason and then I go on to say here, um, the end result is the embracing of human freedom, authenticity, consciousness, will, imagination, and most importantly, love. 
It is through faith that one actualizes the self. But the important part to know is this emphasis on the authenticity of individual choice, passion, immutability of experience, and how the group is set against the making of oneself and genuine selfhood, right? So that that idea of the of the ethical realm is actually set against the individual because you are only choosing to, ex- not even choosing, you're just accepting things as presented yeah. ra- rather than taking the leap of faith. And so it, it, it's set against oneself and genuine selfhood. It is our non-cognitive acceptance of the ethical that has us embrace mediocrity and never unlock the higher levels of consciousness regarding ourselves. Um, and they play a super huge role in the novel notes from underground um and we'll we'll lay that out um and so and also a side point kierkegaard does claim that we must learn to embrace suffering and anxiety um as these come with the immense burden of responsibility of our freedom so as you were saying that that freedom causes anguish but in embracing the suffering we empty ourselves and are filled with joy and hope through god seeing ourselves as both sinner and open to divine grace anguish is a term that Sartre uses for essentially the same thing Kierkegaard's calling uh, anxiety here. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I hope that like, if I could just give a broad overview, existential stages for the individual, you have the aesthetic, which is just your normal everyday life. You have the ethical, which is the ethics that are imposed upon you by the group, the other, by society, wherever you circumstances you find yourself in. And then you have the religious in which you have now experienced transcendence beyond reason through the embracing of your authenticity, uh, your freedom and your individuality as yourself in order to embrace a higher form of consciousness and where you have become aware of your place in the eternal um, as an individual in the temporal and you embrace a paradox in which you are then able to experience all that God has for you, which is a lot. <laughs> um, did that, was that a good, I, I hope, like, did you have anything to add to that or was that sufficient? No, I think it's good. I think it'll become more clear once we, hey, we should talk about the book on this podcast. Um, yeah, I think it'll be more clear once we get back into the character because, and especially for anyone who's read uh, the first portion up to now, like I think these ideas are are pretty clear. Um, like they'll they'll ring true, uh, and the idea of the the crowd and um, kind of kind of the aesthetic side of that. Um, I think it's important to say that like you can be you can be religious or even just following the ethical codes authentically, but what the way to do it inauthentically would be to do it without ever considering it or without like completely blindly, or that's just the way things are done. But, you know, perhaps you could go follow this thread all the way through and then come to the conclusion on your own, the full range of experience and then, and then come to the conclusion that no, this is correct. This, and this is why I'm doing it. And it's founded on, as you were saying, this paradox, um, which obviously, but the importance is that you go through the personal individual experience. And, you know, I think this is why so many people in religion, you grow up in perhaps the ethical side of religion, but you never really cross over um, for it to be this more authentic side of religion for you to have that, that crisis of faith. And then to rebuild it on your own or perhaps trash it and then maybe come back to it, maybe not. But the idea of just kind of like living your parents' religion is a very, you know, um, ethical. That'd be very much in the ethical side of what Kierkegaard's talking about here. Yeah. And so to then kind of build on what you were saying earlier about 
you know, authentically choosing what is within the realm of the ethical, I think that's a good way to relate this back to the underground man. Because at least in this extreme example of rational egoism and materialism, which is what Dostoevsky is arguing against through the underground man, is that- Right, this is a complicated situation. Exactly, because it's you see an individual who has attempted to, and I guess in a way, authentically choose, but in the authentic choosing of the ethical- it's it is in that very ethic the very ethics of rational egoism that is right attempting you see to, him having yeah. the the existential crisis which is which is honestly him being authentic if if he wasn't being authentic he wouldn't be having a crisis the people who are inauthentic in this book are the men of action that are talked about we talked about in the last episode that are in the first part of the first section where they hold all these beliefs, but they don't really think about them. You know, he he says that he's stuck in the inertia of hyper-consciousness. And that and that it's causing all sorts of anguish and struggle and pain. And he has a personal, spiteful, masochistic twist. But existentially, he's very he's more authentic than anyone else in this novel because he's trying to figure it out for himself. You know. Now, the problem is and why this gets so complicated is because he has he has, as Aaron was saying, the Chevronevsky rational egoism in his mind. That's the philosophy he's completely believing in in his mind, this um, materialist predeterminism. Um, but as a human being, he has the nature that Dostoevsky believes in, which is that Russian Orthodox existentially experienced. So he's he that's why he's this huge collision of ideas and he's so he's struggling so much is because he has this one thing in his brain the the argument or the philosophy that Dostoevsky's arguing against um and he has another thing in his spirit and his human nature and in his emotions so Dostoevsky's trying to show that hey here's what I think people are really like in their nature in their spirit and what in their will um, and here's what you're saying they're like in their mind. And, he, and you're pretty much in your philosophy trying to discount everything I believe in and only say what you believe in exists. So he is a walking contradiction between his brain and his his spirit, essentially. So that's why you're seeing this existential crisis play out over and over and over again, um, because he has all these this wide range of feelings and urges and this this deep um, individual freedom that he wants to authentically experience. Um, but every time he feels that, he then thinks something and his mind says, well, no, I'm materialistically determined. That's what Shevernevsky taught me. That's what they've proven to me scientifically. And that is, that's why you keep seeing him thinking these things through. And then he's like, nope, he has this kind of ironic twist. Like, he hits this wall and that's why he's talking about, well, I'll just keep running up against this wall because in his mind, he knows and he won't get rid of this philosophy that he knows that his life is determined and that history will come to an end in the Crystal Palace and that'll be all. But he just can't believe it with his with his whole person. And so he kind of has this this twist where he just keeps going over and over and over again. The thing that makes it so complicated is that you have. Dostoevsky's human nature implanted in this character um, underneath this philosophy of Shevernevsky. And Dostoevsky's view of human nature is 
from the Russian Orthodox view. And, you know, Dostoevsky personally has more of a existential experience of it. But Russian Orthodoxy in general is different than the Augustinian tradition of the West. And, you know, that flows down to Protestantism. Um, And it's majorly different in the idea that orthodoxy doesn't regard man as being born totally depraved or like born into original sin. Instead, the world is kind of is kind of a proving ground. Um, So people are born, humans are born in God's image, but not his likeness. So it's like a child who's grown. And through your life, you have to struggle and learn and grow and virtue. And throughout life, you are formed into God's likeness. So it's like you're a piece of metal and you're beat on by a hammer your whole life until you're closer and chiseled away at. Um, So in Russian Orthodoxy, it's really the afterlife um, where you have your hope in the future. um, And it's here that the world is that Christ didn't really come in Russian Orthodoxy to give you peace and absolution, but he came to to stir people to struggle against sin, which in Dostoevsky's mind is the law of egoism or your personality, finding yourself more important than others. Um, So that's kind of what you have within the underground man's human nature that he's that you see him struggling with is this idea that he's like, no, I'm an individual. I want to authentically experience this. And I feel like I should be free to make my choices. I feel like there's something more out there than just this materialistic, I'll fulfill your human needs. I'll give you food. You know, he makes that point in the chapter to talk about. He's like, you could give me all the pies and cakes and just let me continue with the the procreation of the human species and keep me in this beautiful mansion. But that is more to life than that. Life is here to struggle and become more perfect. And um, Dostoevsky does not believe at all that there is this kind of end of history on this earth that that uh, will result in a utopian philosophy because he thinks that human nature is meant to struggle because our nature is such that we are egoistic and we have the law of personality that we want to um, we want to distinguish ourselves and we want to care about our we want to boost our personality at the expense of others. But the ideal for him is the law of Christ, which is the idea of loving your neighbor as yourself, um, which is essentially non-egoism. So he sees that at the very nature of every human being is this struggle between our real nature and the ideal that we should be striving for. So even if you're the best person on Earth, your life is going to be full of struggle because you're going to be constantly trying to repress your human nature to aim at your ideal. And so... That's kind of at the base of the underground man as he's having this uh, existential crisis. You have these ideas that Dostoevsky deeply believed in, um, and that's why he's writing this character against Chevronevsky's irrational egoism and why he's his character is so ugly and why he's constantly fighting to remain authentic, even when his brain's telling him it doesn't really matter. Did that make sense? I could barely follow. But I tried my best. <laughs> okay. Well, I think as long as everyone tries their best, then, <laughs> then we could just cut it. No, but. no, no. I, I, I mean, I, I, I totally get yeah, it. Yeah, it's super complicated. It, it, yeah. It's just because he has his idea underneath someone else's idea. And it's, so it's very confusing. I think 
I think we need to take a step back and try to, I'm going to try to clarify just a little bit um, with a, with a quote um, from uh, an essay by um, who is this individual? It's from, I believe the university of Washington or the university of Seattle. Um, Dr. Lay Lee. I don't know. Lay L E I G H. Thank you. Wherever you are, if you're listening to this, I appreciate you. All right, here it is. Encountering these arguments of ethical egoism, Dostoevsky affirms his own system of an ethic of altruism. This ethic appears in the behavior of his more noble or saintly characters, yada, yada, yada. Its main principle is the law of love, which is simply the golden rule of love of others. Since Dostoevsky believes that the fulfillment of this commandment of love is impossible for human beings in their fallen condition, all this should sound very familiar from what Daniel was saying. I just said that. He also affirmed their need to merge their love of others with the love of God. The apparent need for self-love must be must be merged with the love of all, both others and God. This law of love overcomes and transcends the law of personality or self-interest through a lifelong struggle with human sensuality, anger, spite, self-will, pride, atheism, and other false values. The way to live out this law of love is through the development of a proper conscience and through faith. Conscience is an innate conception of good and evil, especially of the good of loving others, a conception that is bolstered by an emotional intuition of the obligation to follow this law of love and by the good example of other people. And then faith in God supports that consciousness. Now, why didn't you tell me someone much smarter than me already wrote what I was trying to say? You <laughs> could have saved five minutes. Already. Yeah, I mean, it's a good it's a good summary, but it it, it establishes the Kierkegaard connection and it also destroys the Kierkegaard connection. So the reason why we talked about Kierkegaard and why it's so important is not only to kind of lay out where the underground man fits within those stages of existential thought somewhere middling within the ethical and the aesthetic um but it, you know we can see that where faith becomes this all-important virtue this gift a literal gift from god in order to kind of transcend his state and so i think where the underground man is really struggling what's underpinning all of this is that rational egoism has destroyed faith it destroys God. This is what Dostoevsky is kind of warning about. And then the end result of that is this flailing, the spite, is where an individual, even though may take up the existentialist mantle and try to live an authentic life, he will never be able to actualize the self because there is no faith. And if there is no faith, there's no love. And if you're unable to love, then you're unable to be loved. And then so this ethics of altruism that goes against the rational egoism, which is really what all human beings are striving towards for Dostoevsky in terms of their telos, is now destroyed because what is required is faith, an authentic, passionate experience of the paradox of Christ. And it is it is in that absurdity of it that he would transcend in Kierkegaardian notions, right, transcend his current state. And then be emptied of himself and then filled with grace to then turn back on himself, love himself so that he would also love others and then be loved in return. And then this creates this feedback because we're responsible, according to Dostoevsky, for all everyone's sin. And so there's this like absolute need, and I'm not going to get into that, but there's this like absolute need of love that is so vital to every single individual. And faith is the underpinning of that experience that leads to the higher conscious state. But where this breaks from Kierkegaard is kind of what I was saying and what Daniel was saying is that the law of altruism means that there's a deeply communal aspect to faith and our altruism. Um, because Dostoevsky would eventually come to the conclusion of, of this kind of nationalistic almost 
ethic in which Russia would come as a, <laughs> yeah, as right, you know, as this. <laughs> he was at the end of his life a imperialist in the mind. He convinced himself that the Russian nature, because it was so steeped in Russian orthodoxy and not polluted or contaminated by uh, the Catholic Church of the West, which he did not care for, um, that Russia as the like parent country should kind of merge with other countries, especially Slavic countries. And it would bring to the world its uh, brotherhood of love, of orthodoxy, which would, if there ever was any chance for a utopia on Earth, it would have to come through Russia and through orthodoxy. And whether he believed that it actually could happen on this Earth or in the next next lifetime is kind of up for debate. It seems like at some of his more fever pitches, he believed that it was possible if only Russia could control everything. But uh, yeah, it's a little bit of a... But isn't that a silver lining? Isn't that also like Kierkegaard where like you simultaneously don't acknowledge it, but then you do like you're like, it's not possible in this life, but it is possible because all things are possible through. Exactly. God. <laughs> yeah, it's it's another it's another little paradox. And, and that was something that he gave a famous speech about and just got ripped apart by people. And they were like, you really seem to believe that it's impossible, but also that maybe it's possible. And he was like, hey, it would be possible if we all just did it at the same time, but it doesn't seem likely. (laughs) But where the break comes in from Kierkegaard is that deeply communal aspect. So Kierkegaard would never move on from the individual, authentic, subjective experience of faith. He would continuously advocate for the rest of his life for a very, very pious individual uh, that transcends uh, into the realm of, of religion and, and attempts to become what he would call a knight of faith. Um, but uh, for Dostoevsky, the individual would then pass away in, in the face of the universal, much like Kierkegaard, but then it would then become this communal effort um, where he, right. he would no he, longer be an individual, but rather he serving really, community. Yeah. I mean, and that's why he had such a struggle around the idea of how can someone truly love their neighbor as themselves when that entails them destroying their own personality or ego or lowering it so much that they're that they really regard themselves as these other people and and um i think in the next the second part the narrative like what you're saying is going to ring so true because you're going to see you have to remember that this first part is chronologically out of order that the second part of the book, the narrative part actually comes first in the chronologic uh, chronology of the of the entire work. And so what we've seen here is him spending decades all alone, cut off from this love and this communal effort. Um, and what you'll see in the second part is kind of what put him there is is his attempt to chase after this. And uh, it's not pretty, but it also makes for some of the funniest and most chaotic scenes in literature. So, But not only that. And that is absolutely true, and I'm super looking forward to it. And I don't want to spoil too much, but we also get to see at the end what what happens to him when he actually does experience love and pity and somebody who does live an authentic life and leaves that kind of that the kind of planned uh, society, the the rational egoism, the materialism, the uh, that seeks to to make everybody, as he would put it, an organ stop. Somebody who who does take pity on him and loves him and 
tries to break through and what that does to him. And so in that way, we also see the contrast because it's not like we're just going to let it suck all the way down as we follow this like terrible, spiteful man. There is this character who does seem to kind of represent the ethic that Dostoevsky is talking about and more importantly, the authenticity that the existentialist is striving for. Um, and so in that way, we kind of see where Dostoevsky is an existentialist. Yes, but also no. <laughs> so <laughs> his answer is different. I mean, how you get to that or how you work towards that different goal is existentially, but his goal is not the same as as others. So yes and no. Yeah, that's that's so true. That's a good point. Um, but, uh, I think this is a, probably a good place for us to wind it down. Um, that was, yeah. A- can, can I give just a little bit of evidence towards what we're talking about? So people aren't like, why did I listen to that? Do they even have, they, are they going to talk about the book? <laughs> um, yeah. I just to, and this is a bit of historical interest. It's in how we ended last time that we didn't actually publish. Um, but it, it's, it's a little evidence that, um, Dostoevsky really did have this, idea of religion in mind for this character because it's like this guy is so spiteful so masochistic like what like he thought religion was the answer i'm not seeing it um so there is uh in chapter or part 10 of the first uh first section of the book there is a kind of just historical contingency that dostoevsky wrote in this section about religion as kind of the answer for as some sort of answer for him Um, but it was censored out, um, by the censors at the time and he never went back and fixed it, um, for good reason, um, probably better for the character anyway. Um, but it also adds, there's just some very large confusion if you're reading along at right at this point where it starts talking about chicken coops and crystal edifices and crystal palaces. Cause you're like, I thought the crystal palace was bad. And now he's talking about a crystal edifice. What what the hell's the difference? Um, so the idea here is that he was trying to say that religion is a true crystal palace. It's a true utopia that can actually meet your needs, not just your materialistic needs, but your spiritual and your individual needs. Um, and the when he starts calling the crystal palace a chicken coop, what he what he originally wrote here was the idea that. If it starts to rain and I need somewhere that's dry, I'll go into a a chicken coop, but I won't pretend that it's some beautiful crystal palace. It gets the job done. Like I'm not wet. And in the same way, Chevronevsky's idea of the crystal palace gets the materialist job done. I'm eating like I'm sheltered, but it doesn't fulfill me in any other way in the way that this true crystal palace or this crystal edifice, as he calls it in our translation, um, fulfills not just my material needs, but all of my needs. The, the evidence that he actually wants this instead of it just being um, just being something that he, he mentions or that he is spiteful towards. I'm just going to read this quote on page 41 in ours. I said that not at all because I am so fond of sticking out my tongue. Perhaps the reason I was angry was merely that all of your buildings, there is still none at which one is not tempted to stick out his tongue. On the contrary, I gladly let my tongue be cut out altogether from sheer gratitude if things could be arranged in such a way that I myself would never have to wish to stick it out anymore. What do I care if this is impossible to arrange and we are expected to content ourselves with apartments? 
Why then was I endowed with such desires? Can it be that I was made this way simply so that I'd come to the conclusion that my whole way of being is nothing but a fraud? Can this be the sole purpose of it? I don't believe it. So it's like he's he acknowledges that he's spiteful and he's sticking out his tongue at these systems. But what he's like, he says, he says, I'll be so I'd be so grateful that I'd let you cut off my tongue if you could just give me something, a system that really would fulfill me that really would give me purpose. And it isn't this sort of sham or this fraud um, that he sees Shevardnevsky's Crystal Palace as. So, you know, this idea here is that the underground man, if he could find something like what Dostoevsky believes fulfills everything, which is Christ and religion, then he would be so happy that he would no longer be this spiteful, masochistic person. Like this would free him. Um, but that was cut out or very maimed and it never really got put back, but probably for the best. Um, but it shows there it was some sort of hope. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good, I think that's a good quote. Um, and I'm glad that you stopped me to, to uh, add that in again um, from, from the previous recording. Um, I think that's important going forward. So um, that's our basically clinical treatment of of Dostoevsky and a brief introduction to uh, some of Kierkegaard's thoughts and how they relate to kind of lay the groundwork for, you know, Dostoevsky's philosophy, because this is a philosophy podcast, so too bad. Um, the next time we'll be here will be to finally kind of cover the fiction. Um, the hey, Should we talk about the book next time? Yes, we should talk about the book. Um, and um, we'll be covering the uh, the story that unfolds with the underground man um, in the second part of the novel. Um, and so we'll try to get into some more literary criticism uh, and just uh, some more analysis in that section. But uh, other than that, enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you so much for listening.